Welcome to episode number 18 of the Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and we are discussing today the book of Revelation. And it's got to be a high-level view, because the book of Revelation obviously is one of the most complex books of the Bible. In fact, as one theologian put it, until you know the entire Bible, you'll never understand Revelation, because Revelation is a recap of the entire Bible. Bible. But we're going to listen to a lecture today by R.C. Sproul where he dives into some of the major issues surrounding the book of Revelation, primarily being the dating of the book of Revelation. He spends quite a bit of time discussing the dating of the book of Revelation and why it matters so much when it was written. I'll let him do the discussing and the teaching uh, but no, after his teaching will come a roundtable discussion that happened on August, uh, excuse me, October 1st of 2020, and it was uh, surrounding the idea and the vision of planting a distinctly and robustly and unapologetically reformed church in Lewis County. If you'd like to hear the other episodes that we've had on the Reformation Roundtable, you can go to lewiscounty.church. And we've got all of our previous discussions up there. We talk about everything from eschatology to the different doctrines of grace. And we'll be in the future, uh, as we move out of eschatology, we'll be ex uh, examining other aspects of reformational theology. Things like sacraments and ecclesiology and, and uh, things along those lines. Uh, but enough from me. We'll go ahead and get to the teaching. Once again, you can hear this, all, all the episodes on lewiscounty.church. Also, there's a contact form if you would like to join us in the work that we're doing. Right now, we are in the infancy of it. It's just the idea stage. And we think that God could be glorified in the Lewis County area, the Centralia Chehalis area, if a Reformed church was planted and if we were his willing participants in that work. We'd love to have you join us. Enjoy the teaching and the discussion that follows. We'll see you next time. Surely in any study of New Testament eschatology and anyone who's concerned about what the Bible teaches regarding the future, that concern inevitably leads us to a consideration of the content and significance of the New Testament apocalypse or the book of Revelation. I don't think there's any book in the Bible that has been subjected to more scrutiny than that book and about which there's a wider diversity of interpretation than with respect to the book of Revelation. And part of the reason for that, of course, is the very nature of the literary forms that we find in it. It is so imaginative and symbolic with all kinds of graphic images that seem somewhat at times bizarre to us that some people think that even uh, when it was written, it was written in a kind of code to conceal its exact message from the Roman authorities of the day. But of course, that remains a matter of speculation. There are all kinds of arguments and debates about what this symbol means or what that symbol refers to and so on. But there is a very pressing question about the book of Revelation that is widely ignored among Christians. And that is the question of when the book was written. Because when we're seeking to understand any book of the Bible, 
we have to do our homework and look at the setting, the life setting in which it was first penned, and the dating of a book at that level becomes very important. We also want to know who wrote it and to whom it was written. Well, we know who wrote uh, uh, the book of Revelation. It is attributed to the Apostle John, who uh, tells us that he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and that he received this direct revelation from Christ and was commanded to write down these things for the instruction and benefit of the church. And so the question is, okay, John says he was at Patmos, he was in exile, he was the author of this, and the source of the information came from Jesus, but when was it written? Now, why is that question so important? Well, in our discussions of trying to understand the Olivet Discourse and its references that Jesus made about these things that were about to transpire within the time frame of the present generation, in which he prophesied the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and his coming at the end of the age, which we've been wrestling with. And the a moderate preterist position is, of course, as we've seen, that all of these things that Jesus predicted would come to pass within the time frame of one generation did in fact come to pass, coincidental with the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. Now, the question is, what bearing does the book of Revelation have on that theory? Because that's what it is. It's a theory. This is not a dogmatic assertion on my part. I want to labor that. But this is just one uh, view of understanding these difficult questions. Well, <clears throat> the majority report in New Testament scholarship for a long time has been that the book of Revelation was written during the decade of the 90s probably during the reign of the emperor Domitian, which would have made it uh, appearing well after the fall of Jerusalem. And so that would make it extremely unlikely that the prophecies contained within the book of Revelation had any reference immediately to these catastrophic events that Jesus had predicted on the Mount of Olives. But then the question comes up, what if it wasn't written in, in the 90s, but was written before the fall of Jerusalem? Then that would put a whole new cast on understanding the immediate application of the content of the book of Revelation to the contemporaries of John who received that revelation. And there have been reputable scholars in the past who have argued for a much earlier date of Revelation, placing it in the decade of the 60s rather than in the 90s or even after the year 100, as some higher critics have placed it. That is to say that it was written before the fall of Jerusalem and with specific reference to those events that were going to come to pass in and around 
these catastrophic uh, moments that had been predicted by the Mount of Olives uh, discourse. So, I want to take some time today to look at this question about the dating of the book of Revelation. Now, anytime we face the question of dating a book in the Bible, we pay attention to two basic sources, or two, two areas. First of all, we talk about the external evidence. And then we are concerned with the internal evidence. For example, when we look at the book of Romans, and it begins where the author says, Paul, an apostle called by God, and so on. Uh, he identifies himself as the author, and we know when he died, and so on. We can get the, some uh, information about the dating of Romans by the internal evidence of what Paul says about what's going on at the time. Luke talks about the narrative, uh, the infancy narratives of Jesus placing him during the reign of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria and so on. And so you have internal statements in various books that give you a clue as to when they were written. But the church has always been concerned historically for external references. And what we mean by the external evidence are references to the works by extra-biblical writers. For example, the early church fathers would frequently quote from scriptures that obviously had appeared before they did. And if we know, for example, when Clement of Rome lived, and we find Clement quoting the Apostle Paul from the book of Corinthians, we know that the book of Corinthians was written before Clement died. And so if we know when Clement died, that'll help us give us some parameters for judgment. And sometimes even the extra-biblical writers will even be more specific and tell us the year or so on that the tradition holds to the appearance of a certain book. Now, one of the most formidable arguments for the late date of the book of Revelation comes by way of the testimony of the church father, Irenaeus, who is one of the most respected uh, fathers of antiquity, because he makes a specific reference uh, to uh, the Apocalypse, in his book, his famous book, Against Heresies. In fact, it's book five of Against Heresies. Now, before I read this quote from Irenaeus, let me remind you that his original work was written in the Greek language, and that the Greek manuscript of his book has been lost, but we do still have Latin translations and now what I'm going to read from is an English translation that is a translation from the Latin text, which was a translation from the Greek text. But in any case, let me read to you what Irenaeus says with respect to these things. He says, and I quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. Now, 
Irenaeus was born in the year 130 and died in the year 202. So he's a second century church father. And now he's talking about the mysterious character of the Antichrist and of the apocalyptic references to him that he said, if it were necessary that his name should be known by us, that it would be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. Now, what's he saying there? If we needed to know the name of the Antichrist, John would have told us because he's the author and the one who beheld the apo ap apocalyptic vision. Now, here is, uh, here is the critical sentence. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day toward the end of Domitian's reign. Let me say it again. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. So here is the chief reason in terms of external evidence, because most of the later church fathers who dated Revelation late and during the reign of Domitian did so on the basis of Irenaeus' testimony. And the first glance at these words would suggest that what Irenaeus is saying was that the apocalyptic vision that John received took place during the reign of Domitian. And that obviously would have been after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, on the other hand, Irenaeus could be wrong. He's not an inspired writer. He could have his dates and times mixed up. However, there is a grammatical and literary question about this translation. And the question has to do with the antecedent of that. That which, again, was seen almost in our day toward the end of the mission's reign. Is he saying that John's vision was seen during the reign of Domitian? Or is he saying that John, who received the vision, was seen as late as the reign of Domitian? Now again, church history indicates that of all of the disciples of Jesus, the one who lived the longest was John. In other words, if you do a technical analysis of this statement, the statement can mean either one, either that the vision John received took place during the reign of Domitian, or that John was seen during the reign of Domitian, the one who could answer the question for us as to who was the Antichrist. Now, if we look further at the writings of Irenaeus, some other interesting facts emerge. One is that Irenaeus himself makes reference to, quote, ancient copies of the book of Revelation. Uh, you don't talk about something that was written in your own lifetime as an ancient manuscript. But had it been written a uh, hundred years earlier, 
than he was writing, then obviously that appellation could justly be applied as he does here. So he makes references elsewhere in his own writings to ancient uh, copies of the Revelation. Also, Clement argued, another very highly respected early church father, that all of the apostolic revelation that we received in the text of Scripture ceased during the reign of Nero, so that the external testimony of Clement is that everything that is found in the canon of the New Testament and all of the apostolic revelation, which would include the book of Revelation, had ceased by the death of Nero, which means all of the New Testament documents were completed by the year 68, which would make it prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Now, those uh, are a couple of the key points of external evidence. There are other minor considerations, and I won't go and take the time to go into them here. I do give more of that information in my book, but not only that, but uh, Ken Gentry uh, has written a magnificent book on this subject entitled Before Jerusalem Fell, in which as part of his doctoral dissertation, he researched all of this and uh, tries to make the case, and I think he makes a powerful case, uh, for the early dating of the book of Revelation. But let's turn our attention now, at least uh, for the meantime, away from the external evidence and look at the internal evidence, be evidence because that can be very important. Now, we've been concerned all along in this series with the time frame references of the New Testament. Let me remind you how the book of Revelation begins. Chapter 1, verse 1, reads as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Over and over again in the book of Revelation, we have references to time frames of nearness. Let me just give you a quick summary. As I've already mentioned, those things which much shortly take place. Chapter 2, repent, or I will come to you quickly. Chapter 3, behold, I come quickly. Chapter 22 speaks of the things which must shortly take place. Uh, chapter 22, surely I am coming quickly. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the time is near. Chapter 22, verse 10, the time is at hand. And uh, verse 119, write these things that are about to take place. Chapter 310, the hour is trial, which is about to come on the whole world. Now, the Greek terms that are used there to talk about soon, near, at hand, all are time frame references in the language that have a very, very short time span. It's really stretching it to say 
that uh, the Bible says that we have a revelation here that is given about things that are near at hand and are going to take place shortly, that you would expect a period of over 2,000 years to elapse after those time frame references are given. So the point is this, that the contemporaries who received the first edition of the book of Revelation note the several references in it that point to the radical nearness of the fulfillment of the things that are being unfolded in this prophecy. That is to say, there's a reason why the first generation of believers had this urgent sense of expectancy of the nearness of, of the crisis that was at hand because of the language of the book of Revelation itself, which whenever it does speak in time frames, speaks of a time frame of that which is coming soon. Now, in addition to that, there are other internal uh, references uh, that we pay attention to, not the least of which is that so much of the language of the symbols of the book of Revelation uh, is borrowed from the temple itself. It's, it's replete with temple allusions throughout the book. And yet there's not the slightest hint anywhere in the book of Revelation that the temple is no longer standing. Now this is an argument of silence, but it's one of those pregnant silences that certainly an event as catastrophic to Christian Jewish history as the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple would be mentioned by an apostolic writing that took place after the event. And if Revelation was written in the 90s, and if it was the only New Testament book that was written after 70 AD, one would certainly expect some statement about the destruction of Jerusalem, had it been a past event. But there's not a word. And the background, the illustrative background that shapes the whole character and content of the book is of a present temple. It's already there. It's still there. But again, that's an argument from silence and is not something that would be absolutely conclusive, but it certainly is corroborative to the theory of an earlier date. Now, uh, in uh, Revelation chapter 13, we have a section that is, uh, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 17. Uh, there is a segment of the text which is critical to pinpointing the dating and the timing of the book with respect to internal evidence. And let me call your attention to chapter 17 where we read these words. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Now here we get an internal translation or explanation of the symbols. 
The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And he goes on to describe the beast and so on. Now, the question, there are two questions here. First of all, what is the city of seven hills? It's possible that that is an obscure reference to Jerusalem itself. But in all of antiquity, the most famous nickname for Rome was the city on the seven hills. And so if the author of Revelation is describing Rome here, it does goes on to speak of the kings of Rome, and some scholars object to that, saying that the Romans didn't call their emperors kings, they called them emperors rather than kings. But in any case, we read here in the text that there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that the book is being written at the time of the sixth king. Because five have gone, there's another one that is to come, but the sixth is now. That is, there's a present reference to the sixth king, and, and the sixth king who reigns over the city with the seven hills. Now, the question is, who is the sixth king? And we would ask that question by saying, who is the sixth emperor of Rome? Now, we have a problem here. Julius Caesar, it's called Caesar, did not receive the title emperor. The first one to receive the formal title emperor was Caesar Augustus. So if we start with Caesar Augustus, he would be number one, Tiberius would be number two, Caliglia three, Claudius four, Nero five, and Galba would be number six. Remember, Galba just lasted a short time and he was murdered. But Galba died before the year 70. So if Galba is the sixth king that is referred to here, then obviously the book was written before 70. Now some people say that because of the Civil War and the rapid uh, elimination of Galba, his successor Otho, and Vitellius, uh, that those three aren't included in the list. They don't count. So now, beginning with Augustus, the sixth, if you skip Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, would be Vespasian, who also comes too early. He's not into the 90s. His reign finishes in the decade of the 70s. Now there's a third option, and that is that you start counting not with Augustine, but you, or with Augustus, but you start with Julius Caesar, who, by the way, in ancient Roman lists of rulers, he is the George Washington. He really is the first. Now, and I might just add to you the other problem of calling them kings. Do you remember when the Jews were 
interrogated about Jesus and so on and his political aspirations, what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. There's ample evidence to indicate that the Jewish people called the Roman rulers kings. So if we start with Julius Caesar as number one, Augustus number two, Tiberius three, Caliglia four, Claudius five, who's six? Nero would indicate that the book was written <coughs> during the reign of Nero, which explains a ton of questions with respect to the internal uh, significance of the content of this book. I think that's a powerful internal reference to the dating of the book, which any one of these options precludes a writing after the year, uh, so at least during the reign of Domitian. Also, in, in conclusion, the writer Clement has an interesting anecdote where he talks about the Apostle John while in exile chasing an apostate and running down this apostate on a wild horseback chase, kind of like a Roy Rogers chase, where you can see John galloping across the plain, racing to catch this, uh, this bad guy. Now let's assume that he was exiled during the reign of the mission. That means that John would have chased this apostate down on this vigorous horse race when John was well into his 90s, where that's really stretching it. I mean, it's possible, I guess, that a 90-some-year-old person could engage in that kind of vigorous activity, but it's unlikely, and it's just one more illusion by the church fathers that would place the writing well before the time of Domitian and prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. In our next session, we will examine the New Testament uh, content with respect to the Antichrist. Uh, is anybody wondering in their mind why he spent almost that entire time on the dating? It makes sense, right, why it matters so much whether or not the book was written after the 8070 or before 8070. Well, context is king, so bad context really can skew your outlook on something. Mm-hmm. Well, sure, and I think that also it kind of Part of, the, part of the challenge is that when you have you have divine revelation of I don't want to say ambiguity but just uh, it's very illustrative in its tone that if there isn't clear fulfillment of that prophecy then you get a whole lot of searching in, air, in ways that don't make sense. So mm -hmm. the example I would give would be the Millerites uh, in, the, in the 1800s. They constantly looking for the rapture to happen and we're usually using, the, using Revelation or you find that you get, which eventually turn into Seventh-day Advent, mm -hmm. and then you get a lot of these um, offshoots of heretical Christianity 
in the form of uh, Jehovah's Witness and in the form of Mormonism. And most of those, where you find their initial rooting, it's in a misreading of apocalyptic literature. It's in the, you start, you ask them where they want to start talking about the Bible. They don't start usually with the Gospels. They start with the book of Daniel and they start with the book of Revelation because those have the the most challenge to them. And so if we can if we can basically take and we can date this before, then there's a lot of fulfillment that's already happened in Revelation that has an answer to some of these Things. Now, it's not going to be complete. I mean, there's obviously there's a lot more to it than just that, but right. it really does it really does help, I think, with with that. And I think it eliminates some of the potential for heresy. Right. I, I was I was really surprised that the because I feel like one of the things RC does a good job of is he doesn't set up. I don't think he sets up straw men uh, just to knock down. And so when he's giving the evidence for a later dating of Revelation, I think he gave it the best argument anybody could give it, which is um, quoting uh, Irenaeus. Uh, and and I, when I, when I heard the quote that all the church fathers have used to date it later, it did seem, ambigu- you know, there seemed to be some ambiguity there. Um, and it seemed ambiguous, like it could mean that, it could mean this other thing, but I don't see this as being written in 90... 9080 or 180 because of that statement. Mm. Um, Charles, do you have something? Do we know what time um, John was in exile? That'd be helpful to know, wouldn't it? I don't. I don't know if we even have like a date range for that, but that would that would help. That would definitely help. I think that uh, quoting Clement. Um, that he said something that makes a lot of sense, or he postulated something that made a lot of sense to me, that the canon was closed by 68 AD. That totally makes sense to me. Internally with the New Testament, um, I just, I thought of this one, but there's other, there's many others you could, you could go to. Um, Hebrews chapter 8, end of Hebrews chapter 8, um, he's talking about the New Covenant. And he says, in, in, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first, the old covenant, obsolete, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it's becoming obsolete, it's growing old, and it's almost gone. But it's still here because when Jesus came, died, resurrected, and ascended, the old covenant was still here. The temple was still doing their thing. Hmm. Everything was still operating as usual. But the, one of the big differences was that now the Jews were like spending all their time oppressing the church, this new sect. And... That 40 year, that generation period was the final culmination of the old covenant and the taking off of the new covenant. Mm. Uh, and internally, that makes the most sense to me that the, the canon was closed before 70 AD because that was the decisive, that was the decisive slamming of the door that said basically this, the end of the age has occurred with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. God is saying conclusively, this period of history is done, and now now we are now we're in the new covenant fully. There is the obsolete one is has fully been rolled up, um, whereas Hebrews seems to talk about it in the transition of it happening. I, I think that's I 
felt like that was pretty something I could get behind. It's interesting to me that I mean, it seems like Clement's quote is pretty strong evidence that the whole New Testament was done by this. I mean, if you just look at what he said and nothing else. Mm -hmm. So it's strange to me that there's such a strong um, sense that Revelation came so much later than all the other books. Right. You know? mm -hmm. It just seems like they're ignoring that statement by Clement, which, I mean, I wonder if, if there was a reason they wanted it later. You know, often we, if we want something, we can, we look at the evidence that supports that more than the other evidence, you know? I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out why the early church would want, I mean, maybe they didn't want to, they didn't want the um, destruction of the temple to be the fulfill, you know, maybe there is a sense because there was a lot of the early fathers that were mm -hmm. from Jewish. I mean, I don't know, it just, it seems interesting that that. They just couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, like that, that can't be what he was talking about. Yes. <laughs> right. If yeah. we um, know when John was born and when he died, like when was he born? Well, we don't we don't know those things. That they, they didn't they didn't uh, keep track of that, or they didn't have the ability to keep track of that those kind of dates the way we do. So a lot of it's just kind of best guess. Uh, they'd have genealogies mm -hmm. that they would use, but those genealogies wouldn't. They would be just begots, meaning mm -hmm. that one. You know, parents had kids, and then those kids had kids, and so you would just have a lineage, but you wouldn't necessarily have a time frame to go off of. Hmm. Um, but I think that that's kind of that brought up an interesting point there. I think, which is what what advantage is there? Because the later the later date, what I think is interesting is RC here, and it, I this sounds more to me like a position in slight opposition to the generally held consensus in part what RC is saying what RC is saying about the about this is it, it's it's the minority report it's the, it's the minor it's the minority uh, position to hold um, just because the minority doesn't mean it's incorrect but it i think that the the challenge is that the majority position is influenced very heavily by uh, Catholic tradition, in in that in, in that a lot of like early church fathers and and things like that would, at least from from where we're sitting now, they weren't in error in their thinking. But as information and as he pointed out too, we've got translations that are coming from Greek into Latin into English. How much you know? How much right. error do we have in those in those translations? And so, but I don't. Yeah, it would be interesting. What what advantage? What advantage would there would there be to a finality? Because there's a, a large degree of finality with it being written and done before seventy A.D. I mean, they're, they're basically the Book of Revelation. Like, it doesn't really leave any more room. Hmm. As, or not anymore, but it doesn't leave as much room for funny stuff, mm -hmm. right? So, because then, then you also get to you know, then you start talking about like the Antichrist, right? Like who is that, right. or is that even you know, like you know, there are there are Antichrists, and then there's the one that they were talking about with John. Mm. So, right, they, they also had like the the kind of first century, I, I'm going to speculate a little, um, 
the ancient man and first century people, they didn't have a, the rendition of time the way we do. Um, there's a really interesting book called um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm. And um, it's a really good one. And he talks about how um, man's place in the world is always making a statement about who he is. And so even something as, as mundane as a clock is saying, um, instead, of, instead of man, I'm going to kind of butcher how he said it, but instead of man watching the seasons and watching God have, you know, move throughout the, the, the various seasons that he, he gives to us, man has now become the timekeeper. Mm. And man is now lives his life based off of the clock and the date and the calendar. Um, the Jews, of course, they lived entirely by the lunar cycles, and it was they had no, you know, as far as like this day, this year or that year, I, I would imagine that it just wasn't nearly as important to them as it is to us. Um, whereas we, you know, we know exactly the day and the month that that the everybody's birthday is. Whereas maybe they just knew the day and the month that the Feast of Purim was, or what you know, whatever whatever major day in there. They know the seasons and the, when the crops come in and go right. out, and they know yeah when the, the festivals that they right. Was, was this guy who wrote that book uh, just looking for another excuse to get upset at Catholics? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I don't even know if he's a Christian. He was, oh, okay. Uh, is it Neil Postman? I think it's Neil Postman. Oh, okay. Yeah, Neil Postman. Um, yeah. It's really good. It explains why I dislike planning sessions so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. So interestingly, this is just kind of me forensically picking this apart a little bit. Assuming when John became a disciple, um, you know, I would assume he was at least, what, 18, 20, somewhere in there. Um, I'm could guessing. 16, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So he, could, he could be younger than that. Years, yeah. So, so yeah, he was, you know, a young man. He's Assuming. always he's always depicted as like no beard and super young, super womanly looking. Like in the last supper, yeah, I guess John is true. like you think he's like who's that girl? Oh, wait a minute, I'm just saying. Traditionally, Da Vinci is our main uh, the theologian Da Vinci. Um, but so so just making an assumption that he was younger. Um, the average lifespan for like from this time even up through about the early 1900s the average lifespan for a male was like 46ish years it's not very long right right so if he lived long enough into the 90s you know that puts him what like 70 years old at, at the at, at the youngest yeah. and that's not i mean obviously there's possibility there but hmm. that also kind of if the average life expectancy is 46 years old and as a disciple one would imagine given Jesus' own words, that he wasn't always well-treated and mm. probably led kind of a hard life. But Jesus also said he would... Isn't that... He's End of John. To, yeah, he said, if, if I want one disciple to live to an old age and the other die early, that's... I guess that's, that's true. referring to John living a rightful old age. But that still could be 50. Like yeah. Be and, yeah. And remember, there, there went up a rumor around what Jesus said that he was going to live forever. Yeah, right. And, um, and, G, and but he, even John in the end of his gospel says, but that's not what Jesus said. Yeah, that's he not said, what he said, if I wanted him to live forever, <laughs> what's that to you? you yeah. Know, yeah. You have your, not your business. <laughs> it's, not, it's not your business. M-O-L-B. But the, but you know, what's interesting too, well, and I, you um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think average life expectancies generally take into consideration 
death within the first year of life. Oh, and yeah. So and if, that's going to skew that number yeah, a little if, bit. If, yeah. if you don't have a very good birth, you know, mm-hmm. uh, birth rate. Uh, It'd be interesting if you could average the ones who right? live past, you know, yeah. 30 years old. Or yeah, because if it, if it really is like... If you're 42 and you're like an old, you're like, whoa, you're 42, is you? you know, it's kind of like, yeah. I, I kind of get the impression that the numbers are being skewed because so many kids don't make it out of infancy. Right. Um, well, and, and this is pre-antibiotics, honestly, like with mm-hmm. the advent of antibiotics, like a whole host of diseases were like, oh, this isn't a problem anymore. Um, and right. I mean, like leprosy, which is always talked about in the Bible, like, oh, lepers, you know, now we just give them penicillin and it goes away. <laughs> it's like, no big deal. Right. <clears throat> Uh, I, I loved the, the, the way in which he said the, uh, you know, external evidence to date things, whether you're talking about da Vinci's paintings or Clement or Irenaeus' um, uh, writings, those are extra biblical and they should be taken as such, as extra biblical things that aren't irrelevant, but are certainly not the authority. Internal consistency trumps he, I felt like R.C., not, not to be critical of R.C., but he kind of said, you know, internal evidence is important, too. And I would say internal evidence is everything. Right. The internal evidence trumps all external evidence every time. Yeah. And the fact that the temple is still standing in the book of Revelation gives you one of two options. One, it happened before 70 A.D. Or two, the dispensational belief that they're going to rebuild the temple before all of the things of Revelation come to pass is going to happen. Or it could be that John was exiled. Could it be that John was exiled before it fell? And didn't know that it happened? Didn't know it, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But then, of course, I think I think Darcy's point was that if, if God was the author of Revelation and he's speaking to people that are going to be reading it right now, it, if the temple has fallen, it seems like it would make sense to you know, make reference to that in some way or another. You know? Right. But but it, it actually there's it it's referenced as being standing right. in Revelation. Right. So not not just that it doesn't reference the destruction of the temple or the destruction of Jerusalem, but that it assumes that it's still standing. No, that's what I mean. If, right. if, if it had fallen, be re- rebuilt. You think there'd be oh, some yeah. sense of like, right? You know, look at the temple's already back. You know, yeah. whatever. Yeah, something right. like that. Just like yeah. Because <laughs> so. yeah. in, in John, I just I was just talking with Conrad here about was that John we were reading last week that. When, when, when um, Jesus makes a reference that you destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it, you know, that would be a, it seems like, again, if the, t- if the temple is built, rebuilt, you know, like it's already been rebuilt, mm-hmm. a, I don't know, I mean, it just seems like there would be. Well, and, and also internally consistent is the fact that we're the temple of God now. There exactly. is no need for right. an external temple right. any longer. The fact right. that it was destroyed in 70 AD seems miraculously consistent with, <laughs> with what the New Testament tells yeah. about us. And we are the living stones that are built up in yeah. the temple of God. Um, there's no need so for So how do you think they got started on this uh, AD uh, 96, 95? I mean, what, I mean, how come we don't have any strong points on that? It's the Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Yeah, Irenaeus wrote about, about how Irenaeus actually has a stronger point for it being later than earlier. Oh. And then they're also saying that uh, in 11.8 it says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, and they're assuming it's referring to Jerusalem, which mystically is called 
Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. And they're referring to it as Sodom potentially because it has been destroyed. And that would be internal. Um, I'm just not guaranteeing anything. Are, 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 you, are you saying that that is an argument for it being dated later or earlier? Um, no, for later. Because, okay, so the city, the, the dead bodies are lining the streets of, um, of that great city, which is, is it? Um, it's been destroyed. Sodom and Egypt, and mm-hmm. the place where the Lord was crucified. So we know it's Jerusalem, because Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he's prophesying that that's going to happen to Jerusalem. No, he's saying that that's probably already happened to Jerusalem. And if he wrote it and it, it was dated later, it'd be almost 25 years later. It might not be the hottest topic of, <laughs> of uh, discussion in the book of Revelation. Gotcha. Um, and, and believe me, I am right. the neophyte. I mean, Charles knows more about this than I do. I'm just saying that for some reason... And, and I think you guys both alluded to a little bit, you know, what's, what's the push for a later date? And why? The, and it seemed like we didn't get much from him to kind of say that. It seemed like he wanted to hurry up and jump into why it could be maybe earlier. And maybe that's because it's kind of so generally accepted that it was maybe later, hmm. you know, 90s. Yeah, I suppose there could be um, better arguments than the Irenaeus one, but I I thought he was saying the Irenaeus that was that statement. He said was, that that was the strongest one, but I don't. There, he said there's other ones that I'm not even go to go into right now. So right. It would be curious to see what the other ones are. I've I've had Ken Gentry's book um, Before the Fall. I think it's what it's called Before the Fall on my list to read. I, I probably will never get to it because I already think it happened before 1780, anyways. So I don't really need to be, I don't feel like I need the, the reinforcement on the it. The reinforcement on it, just because I, 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 I know I can't know for sure either way, and I, I find that, I find internally it makes more sense that it happened before. But his entire dissertation and book is dedicated to trying to prove the fact that it happened before, that it was written before 78. That's the Gentry book. That's the Ken that he Gentry mentioned, book, yeah. yeah. Right, and this guy, anybody ever heard of, when, when was the Book of Revelations written by Wayne Jackson? Well, I wouldn't have it. But he's using Irenaeus the entirely the opposite way because he's saying he was just, um, well, I don't even want to read what he has yeah. to say. But he was just, well, I think it'd be a little boring to mm-hmm. just regurgitate that. But, I, but uh, he was saying it was one of the stronger things because Irenaeus is saying how um, uh, this apocalypse, uh, uh, Apocalyptic division was uh, was seen not very long ago, almost in our um, generation. Hmm. So I mean, he's kind of using it the opposite a little bit, which really, trust me, I I still claim right. ignorance here. I, I think it goes a little bit back to external evidence versus internal evidence. Right. Ex- external evidence can always harmonize with scripture. If it doesn't harmonize with scripture, we have to always have our loyalty be with the internal harmony of, of, of God's word. And so if, if somebody says, oh, well, this doesn't make sense because this external source says this, that, or the other thing, it's not necessarily irrelevant, 
but we kind of have the foundational belief first and foremost that it is internal. Right. I was only bringing it up because it's funny how this guy used um, how do you say it? Arrhenius. Yeah. Arrhenius. He's using it almost the opposite of what. Um, uh, not Sproul, but whoever mm -hmm. he was quoting, Gentry. Right. Yeah, Gen maybe it was Gentry. Gentry. Yeah. What do you think about uh, how he? Um, he didn't say this was this proved one way or the other, but that Irenaeus was quoting the ancient copies of the Book of Revelation, and how the it would be odd odd to call things that were written in his lifetime ancient copies. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I heard him say that. So I, I don't know what to think. It's, I don't. I don't either. I would say a hundred-year-old book would be not really ancient. I mean, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's pushing to call the ancient right. Right. anything in the last. Yeah. Yeah. But if you have like lifespan, yeah. <laughs> it's Chesterton. An ancient book by Chesterton. Remember that? <laughs> unless they were, unless he was prone to hyperbole in his writing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Connor, what were you going to say? We don't call the Middle Ages ancient. That was two thousand years ago. Like AD isn't like ancient history. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. Right. One of the. Um, you know, I don't. I, I'm actually not even totally sure. Um, I know one of the one of the arguments for, like, with baptism. You know, there's the arguments about around the mode of baptism, whether you should be sprinkled, water should be poured on, or whether you should be dipped. Um, and baptizo is the Greek word used, uh, which means to dip. But the reason why we know it means to dip is because there was a recipe for um, making pickles in the first century that talked about baptizing the cucumbers in this brine solution and, you, and obviously to do that you have to fully immerse them. And so we've, we've kind of developed a, <laughs> we've developed a, a theology of baptism around an ex, based at least somewhat on an external to the Bible, an external idea of what the word meant. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's not to say let's argue about baptism now, but it is to say like we have to be careful like what, when we figure out what, the, what these words mean, how are we how are we actually determining that definition? Is it something because the Bible tells us that, or is it something that we're saying? Well, you know, these other ancient writers at the same time said something similar, and so we'll make our theology out of that. So what is this in reference to? Is this a reference to the word ancient? No, 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 not to the word ancient, to the, um, to the fact that we're, we're basing our theology on the fact that Arrhenius, one guy said something about the date of this book. Oh, we're saying Arrhenius said, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but that guy said that he... Um, it's Irenaeus. Irenaeus, thank you. Irenaeus, that uh, Irenaeus was saying that it was written after 70 AD. So, so one guy is then... The testimony of that one guy could be right, could be wrong, um, is now determining all of our biblical theology as it regards to the book of Revelation, because obviously it matters. It's not, you can't So if you look at just the internal, I mean, the fact that we talked about, it doesn't mention a destructive t uh, temple, and actually it talks about a standing temple. That's one. And then, but if we look at the, the sixth king, um, he played around a little bit with the Roman emperors, um, and I don't know history well enough. Were there other lines of kings? I mean, it seems like the Romans would be the most obvious, you know, because they were the rulers of the universe, really, to, to the people back then. But is there other lines of kings that could possibly, that we could look at to see 
Because that seems like a pretty strong one. It, it makes it pretty clear that this is being written during yeah. the sixth king. I mean, right? That that seems like it doesn't take much. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would take um, it would take more effort to say this doesn't really work. You know, I mean, that's, if we just find out who the sixth king, then we know. Yeah. Exactly. Kind of, you know. Why, why does it say that there's only seven kings? That wouldn't make sense to the Roman emperors because there's like a bunch more, a than, bunch more than seven. Like, right. I don't know. And one is yet to come, but there was hundreds, well, not hundreds, I don't know how many, but there was a lot. Well, at the time of writing, though, I mean, I mean God knows how many Roman emperors there were, mm-hmm. but, um, but it, right after Nero was the three that didn't do much, and then who was the one right after the three? Vespasian. Vespasian. And was there something significant about Vespasian? He was, was, the, after Vespasian? was the one that led the attack on, or the original attack on um, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, or Israel, and then his son took over and he was the one who sacked Jerusalem. Right. And his, so his... So Nero, Nero wasn't, wasn't the king at that point. Right. But so who was the king when the temple was destroyed? Vespasian. Was Vespasian or was this his son? Oh, Vespasian was still the king. Yeah, he, was he was just a general. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that would make sense that there's only seven kings until the destruction, mm-hmm. until the end of the age is what they're referring to. Right? And then his son, the one that took it out, was going to be the next one. You didn't say that his son, didn't he say in the... Right, but my point, you asked about why was there only seven kings mentioned. It, there was would, only it could be in the terms point. of there were seven kings and then the end of this age. Yeah. If, if they're referring to the end of the age is when the temple was destroyed, yeah. then there were seven kings during that age. Yeah, yeah. yeah good question and uh, good job figuring that out. Let me go back and look at that. It was, that was Revelation 17 that, it was, that he was reading. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the alternative would be that um, none of Revelation has happened yet, and that um, things are going to have to change pretty radically in modern-day Israel for it things to be able to take place. Uh, Dad, I think this kind of goes back to what you and I were talking about the other night, about how can't we say definitively that there are things that would have to happen before Jesus was to come back, so even if you're pre-mill, you would, you would know, okay, he's not coming back in five minutes. Um, is because the 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 setup of Jerusalem right now is not ready f- for the fulfillment of Revelation. Is, am, am I am I representing that? Oh yeah, no, we're we're golden for a bit here. And <laughs> 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 uh, so if if that's the case, then as you read the Revelation, of course. You're put in the you're put in the place of trying to find a place for everything, as opposed to the natural places that it kind of um, naturally lines up with. Um, which that's where you get your Millerite kind of craziness. I think the reason why some of these fringe groups like prophecy so much is because you can kind of make it whatever you want. You can kind of with sim- with symbolic conjecture. You can make this mean that and that mean the other thing, and, and as long as you try to be as in, internally consistent as, as you can for your own worldview, you can make prophecy say anything you want. <laughs> um, and that's why you can get, because I mean, it's the, 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 the 19th century 
was when we got a lot of these very apocalyptic type fringe groups out there, from Millerites to Jehovah's Witnesses to Mormons. That's where a lot of these things came from because, you know, there was like this, 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 these waves of, um, you know, the, with the awakenings going on and whatnot, everybody was having these big spiritual, these big spiritual movements were happening. And I'm not, I'm not looking down my nose at it. God was moving in a big way within a lot of things, but at the same time, we got a lot of like really inconsistent stuff during those times as well. Um, you know, Mormonism and Job's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists to just name like three. What, what are the, who are the Millerites? So there was, they were the precursor to Seventh-day Adventists um, where there was a sect led by, a, I'm forgetting his first name, but I think it was, I think it was William Miller. Um, and basically they had through um, some some messy analytics of scripture had concluded that the date that Christ was going to return was very specific um, and it was in the it was in the 1800s I can't remember the specific date if you type that's a Google thing but you go and and what happened was is that everybody uh, was preparing to be uh, be raptured and uh, the this group led by uh, Miller got on their roof the day of and nothing happened uh, which is kind of to be expected mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so uh, there was uh, another attempt at calculating it, trying to figure it out, and they did it basically one more time, and they referred to it as the Great Disappointment. Um, and so out of that came uh, the, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists. E.B. White was um, somebody who was connected as a, as a spiritual leader in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and essentially what they had concluded was that Miller had technically gotten it correct, but he got it correct in a metaphysical way in which Jesus moved from one position in heaven to the throne room of heaven. Mm. On, that, on that day? On that day. So they and so to see that happen. Yeah, and so, so the raptures happened, and we were no, like, no, no, no. The rapture, no, the rapture did not happen, but but there, but the uh, the prerequisites the to the happened. the pre the event happened, and the prerequisites happened, and it was kind of a it, it was kind of a convenient out. Uh, they use a reference in the 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 it's reference called a spin. That's that's some serious spin. They use they use a verse in um um in Hebrews, um, but. To quote the Princess Bride, I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, <laughs> after you kind of read through it and you give it some additional context, it doesn't quite make sense. But if you right. just take it in one section, they mm. talk about it. There's a portion in Hebrews where it talks about that. So, so the Millerites were uh, basically the precursors to uh, Seventh Day Adventists. Mm. And people keep doing it too. I mean, Harold Camping, he's he's, uh, he's passed away now, but he had at least two. I mean, he. Had, I mean, it was up. Just a few years ago, he was like, man, he sounded like he was in his like upper 90s. <laughs> but he had people quitting their jobs and selling the farm and, you know, doing those things that we read about. And we think, you know, how can you get sucked up into this? Well, there, there seems to be a, a sense in which our need for community and our need for like-mindedness 
when focused on prophecy, when centered around prophecy and, and somehow figuring out, like, we can figure this out. I know Jesus said that we can't, but we actually think we can. Um, it's, I mean, talk about... Jesus himself did not know. And, and also, the, also possibly the, the desire to get out of here. Right. Too. That's you know, sure. Depending on your situation. Like, wow, sure. that'd be really great if you came right now. I mean, really? Yeah, that looks like it makes, yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's. And foundationally, I think that's where the, ortho, the, the, the orthodoxy transfers into orthopraxy. If your orthodoxy teaches you that the world is not your home, you're just passing through, and that it's all going to burn, and that you are, are, only here until you know Jesus. Get out here. To, to, until Jesus can get you out and get you into your more Christ-like spiritual body, even though Jesus has a physical body. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, thought a little bit that you don't know the time or the date, but now that would be prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So now with the Holy Spirit, there's things revealed mm. that you wouldn't. Know. Yeah. Well, right, right, right. And, that, and that's really where I think a lot of the stuff in that in the Great Awakening or that movement, there was a lot of special revelation that was occurring to enable these these um, these sects to really get anchored, right? Yeah. Where which is that? Oh well, I it was it was this divine inspired reading of it, and so you're actually relying on you're relying heavily on external sources mm-hmm. to inform your interpretation of the scripture and also ignoring key parts. Yeah. And in some cases entire <laughs> books are written by angels, so right? And then they took the proof text with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you familiar with Mormon the origin of Mormonism? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in that and I think I mean you just you Mormonism start, began by Joseph Smith went out in the woods and met an angel and gave him a book in Golden Lakes. Tablets. Yeah. a special yeah. thing to look through, right? The languages, the languages doesn't exist, translated for him, had to memorize it, and then took the books and left. One of, me and one of my friends looked up, apparently, um, Joseph Smith had been a really good storyteller. He was a little bit, like, we just thought this was funny. <laughs> say, say that again? He was, he was known for his storytelling. Oh. I think yeah. he was also wanted for... Uh, he was also known for some criminal activities. Yes, yes, he was wanted for criminal activities, too. That's part of the reason he went out west. Right? And that's why he ended up dying, because a vigilante group came and pulled him out of jail and lynched him. (laughs) Yeah. We had a lot of wives. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The wives did it. They were all jealous. Yeah. (laughs) The lynch mob of wives. (laughs) They used that now of Isaiah, too. uh, In fact, I just read it the other night, but if, you know, I... Jesus saying I have sheep of another fold. Mm-hmm. I, I believe he was thinking of the Greeks, right. not the Jews at the time, but the Mormons use that as that's what they're talking about. Gotcha. Wait, what? In Isaiah, uh, it might be chapter 6, but don't go there. <laughs> just believe you? I would approach chapter 6. You don't mind. <laughs> just for a moment. In no, the Bible. It's in there. In fact, I was uh, just reading in John, quoted. Um, from Isaiah, but it was just saying that Jesus spoke of mm-hmm. having sheep from another fold. Yeah. But oh. it was in definite reference, uh, mm-hmm. I believe, to when the Jews totally rejected his messiahship or his messiah, being a mess- the messiah, that the other fold would be when the Gentiles would then be. Um, 
definitely preach Absolutely. to and, and right. So, but I'm just saying, Smith was saying, "Hey, yeah, we're those other sheep." Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so you read you read like the passage for baptizing the dead, the way they the way the, the Mormons baptized the dead, and you think like, how in the world did you get like we should baptize dead bodies after this? Paul in First Corinthians uh, 15 talks about um, baptizing, and he's like, but why would we baptize people if if they're just dead, never to rise again? You know, why why would there be a baptism for the dead like the dead forever? And so the, the, the Mormons took that and said, hey, we better baptize these dead bodies after they're dead. <laughs> oh. Well, there, I mean, shoot, I think that I think that Paul makes it pretty clear in Galatians, too, when he's talking about at the very beginning, if here another angel were to present the gospel yeah. other than the one that's been given to you, right. that, you know, bad things happen. <laughs> so that, yeah, that actually leads into the doctrine of cessationism. And people have a variety of different positions on cessationism, which, in a nutshell, my understanding of it is that when the canon closed in AD 68 or 90 or whenever, whenever the last book of Scripture was written, that God ceased talking to people via special revelation and now speaks to people only through his word. And that's so, Max's position? What's that? Isn't that Johnny Max's position? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. He's he's a cessationist. I I find myself persuaded by cessationism, not from the standpoint of like God is is now you know limited to where he can't do things. He can do whatever he wants, but we shouldn't expect God to give us a bunch of special non-biblical insight. The insight that he gives us is right here, and if you want to hear God speak, open up your Bible. Um, but that's that's a whole, obviously a whole other topic. But I'd love to hear I'd love to hear what you guys think on. Well, even someone who's not a sensationalist, is that the right word? Cessationist. Cessationist. It's kind of fun. Uh, um, cessationist. Even if they claim that they would say that God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to them, they would never claim that they're follow Christ. They would never mm-hmm. claim that he's being yeah. maybe extra biblical but not counter biblical. Right. Right. So that he would they would say that he speaks to me and maybe an interpretation of scripture. Right. But but I mean are, would they be saying that this new thing that I heard is going to correct scripture? I don't Right. That would be just full full blown heresy if yeah. they did that. Yeah. But but I, I feel like some maybe maybe more charismatics can get pretty, pretty out there on the skinny branches with some of the things that God's telling them, and and you're kind of like, well, where are we going with Scripture on this? You know, like, how are you? Well, and I always have a hard time with that. I feel, I feel like if if God's going to use somebody in a mighty way like that to to make something known or what have you, um, I think it'd be pretty definitively like that's from God. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And so when when people do that, like you said, they get out on the skinny branches, and you can't help but be like. I don't know about that. Like, I feel like there's a reason we have that reaction of, I'm not yeah. so sure. Right. You know? And I mean, I, I mean, there's, there's instances in the Bible where like, Oh, I'll just put out a little lamb's fleece and God, if this is really yeah. from you. <laughs> sure. You know? So I mean, but I think, um, you know yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. I feel like there's, I, I definitely have felt, cause I've traveled in charismatic circles. I definitely, I think the phrase, um, God told me, is used way too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you say, God told me that Jesus Christ is Lord, I say, yeah, he told me too, quite a few times throughout the Bible. That's absolutely true. I agree with you. Know, yeah. But yeah. for him to say, God told me, 
that you one day are going to do this, this, and this. I'm like, um, <laughs> right. I, I think I think the um, the spiritual giftings that are sometimes talked about, where the you know the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking mm-hmm. in tongues and, and those things. One of, one of the things that I I I, those, admittedly, as a pragmatist, I tend to struggle with some of the some of those, the usage of some of those, because I grew up in a pretty charismatic church, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of saw the results of what that did, and I don't think I'm full blown like the that all of the all of the spiritual gifts are are. Are uh, silent mm, right, right now, right, right, yeah. right? Sure. But one of the things that I think is very critical is to understand that most of the spiritual gifts now are a function function as edification to, tools of edification for the personal experience that the Christian has to bring them closer to God, rather than some sort of divine revelation that is going to lend itself to anything outside of pushing you to- closer to Jesus. Hmm. So you said that's now, but that's always been the case, right? I mean, you yes. Would, you yeah. 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 But I'm, but I'm just saying, yeah, but I'm just okay. saying that sometimes like when somebody says, God told me this, it just in general has been my experience that when people say that usually it is somehow God speaking to improve or talk into a circumstance rather than to actually reorient that person to focusing on Jesus. And so that's where I kind of question, because when I, when I see how this, uh, this, the, the spiritual gifts are used or talked about being used when Paul's talking about edification, I think he's talking about the edification of your spirit as it relates to the gospel. Right. For sure. And so it's like, how do I take this? How do I take your circumstances and how do I help you see the? How do I help you see who Jesus is more clearly in these circumstances? Yeah. Rather than how how do how does God become your personal genie to help you out of those? And that's where I kind of see how sure, like talking about the difference between special revelation and then also having a God speaking experience, like you said, not contrabible, right? right? right, right. It's in line with Scripture, and right. so. Anyway. I think also the one of the the gift of prophecy we hear prophecy and we automatically think future telling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but most of the prophecy is is clarifying the word of God mm-hmm. I mean if you look at the prophets they weren't like um, kind of um, I mean I would say the gift of prophecy is still very active and if you ever sit, sit under a good preacher I would say they have the gift of prophecy because they're, they're bringing the, the sure. truth of God clear to me you know that's mm-hmm. that's where the gift of prophecy lies and I, I think the prophecy is speaking for God yeah it's like it's, and I, I I would agree but I would also I'm, I'm, I'm a little I don't know how much I would embrace that that idea of like oh I'm a prophet of God so to speak, but I agree. Well, I never call myself a prophet of God, <laughs> yeah. but I feel comfortable saying that guy has the. I mean, he seems to me has the, but it's not definitive, you know. Sure. I mean, I, I when I was at Fuller, I had friends that called themselves, called each other by the gift that they think that they had. Mm. Like <laughs> they would introduce. So this is Jack the prophet, and this is uh-huh. uh, Brian the intercessor, and I, 
I actually that, roomed with, the healer. I roomed with Jack the Prophet, and I was, and I bugged him all the time. Like, like, like come on, Jack, you can't. Are you serious about this? You know, like I mean, you want your roommate to be, um, you know, Jim the Giver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why couldn't you got the gift of, you know, the, the, the gift of giving? Right. Yeah, but um, I just think. I mean, I, I many times have said, though, that was clearly from God. Mm. Like, if I come home and my right. wife is, I see a certain look on my face. On my wife's face, and I say something that's way beyond my normal wisdom, you know, that that, that speaks into her and encourages her. Like oh, that didn't come from me. That was that was a word from the Lord, you know. And so, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in that sense, that 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 the Holy Spirit is very active in speaking to Absolutely. us, yeah. but not not extra biblical as in sure. new. Well, you're knowledge. going to get that new car, you just, you know. I'm, <laughs> God told me. God <laughs> told me I need a new yeah. car. Yeah, new car. He said not fast said enough. You needed a shotgun too. Right. <laughs> we both need he shotguns. told you the same thing. That's right. Yeah. I do think it is really, it's really, um, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and to me, it just kind of like steals the fact that, that who God is and that God is very much real. That Because um, I've had people ask me, like, How, what's, your, what's your evidence you think that God is real? I've had instances with other believers where, like, a good friend at church who I haven't seen in a while will be talking, and he's like, you know, God put, me, put you on my heart the other day, and I feel like I need to be praying for you. And I'm like, that's pretty crazy, because I had, you know, like, you know, this thing was going on, and, right, for you know, sure. so, like, it's Absolutely. pretty it's pretty amazing how often God does, oh, you know, yeah. going along your day, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I should pray for so-and-so. Yeah, cessationism. Kind of comes out of the blue. Cessationism does not mean God is not, like, totally at work yeah. in our lives in, like, real yeah. physical ways, not... Not just as like a like a good feeling, like he is he is present with us and constantly the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he is constantly giving us good things from his creation. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hundred percent on board with that. I, I think this the cessationism and I'm not sure how I suppose there's a uh, I suppose there's a um, continuum on which you could find yourself with cessationism. Because I thought that they say the, the gifts are no longer practiced. Well, it'd be like, so like the gift of healing right. would be what a doctor would do. They would be considered a healer. The gift of tongues would be being See, able I to speak. I have a problem with that. that, that You'd have a problem with that? To say that God only heals people through doctors. No, 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 no not, not that, but that um, you're not going, you're not, you don't have the gift of healing. You don't just get to go around and lay hands on people and you heal them. Uh, so like the Benny Hinn idea of like I'll hit you with my with my sports jacket and you'll be healed. That idea is you know obviously the the opposite well, of cessation is taking. You jump to the time. obvious um, kooks, but are you saying that? You're saying he's crazy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I just I just relate to them. But I'm just I mean, but are you saying that it's that well? I, what you're saying is the sensation. Cessation. Cessation would say that. No one would ever be healed from just prayer. I'm saying that's the continuum, and I think that would be the the, the ultimate. Extreme. The ultimate cessationist would say all of those yeah, gifts okay. are now done. They're yeah. all they're they're finished from the standpoint of, you know, nobody is going to go out there and start speaking in Greek because they're around a bunch Greek of Greeks people, yeah. who need to hear the gospel. I'm I'm not saying that that's where I'm at. I'm saying that that seems to be where the the extreme on one side and the other extreme is that nothing's changed and it's just like the first century and mm-hmm. you know. Well, I, I have a little bit of a hard time with that idea of that cessationist um, view in that I have heard the testimony or read rather the testimony of a handful of missionaries who have witnessed some things mm-hmm. happen 
they go right along, almost like an act. I mean, where they're just like people are like, oh man, like I know what this guy's saying. What's going on? He's not from around here. Right. Um, and so I think I think those. Um, I mean, you know, this is kind of interesting. Uh-huh. I, think, I think that that kind of thing does happen. And that's where I think maybe too far on the cessation scale, mm-hmm. you like start limiting what you believe God is able to do. And if God wants to open up my mouth and speak Greek, it's going to bring him glory because I obviously can't do it. Right. Um, but if, if, God, if I open my mouth and start, you know, start speaking gobbledygook, that just makes people think, you know, Paul even says people will come off, you know, they'll think that, that there's, it's chaotic and it's crazy and they'll think that you're insane and, and it, you kind of don't blame them when, when you think of that kind of, that kind of speaking in tongues. Like when I think of speaking in tongues, I think it's clearly miraculous because you're, you can't fake speaking in a language you don't know. Right. You can't fake healing somebody because mm-hmm. your shadow passed over them. You right. know, like, right. like the apostles did. So I think it seems to me like the sensation, whatever spectrum on, often, and this is maybe a gross generalization, but it seems like often that comes out of a too much taste of the ridiculous version of that. I mean, it, and, and to me, sometimes it feels like I feel like Christians are throwing the baby out with the bathwater and mm. saying, "Well, there's no way the gifts are still being practiced because I've seen it attempt to practice and it's ridiculous." You know, uh-huh. yeah. and I and I think, like you said, if you spend any time overseas, I mean, when I went to Taiwan for the first time, uh, I mean, it's just a whole different world, of right? In the sense that, yeah, and I and I have definitely read accounts of missionaries, and I've. I've known people that have traveled in, in uh, South America that um, that it seemed to me that apparently the gifts were very much alive and, and very active and um, mm-hmm. and I, I tend to think that they've slowed greatly down in America because we're so comfortable and so we're amusing ourselves off to on, a, on a yeah. other but 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 would even that idea that they would slow down in America because of something we're doing imply that there's something that we can do to control the spirit coming well, over? Well, I mean, us? Jesus said that, and a, a prophet is off honoring his own town, and he couldn't perform miracles because of the lack of belief in his town. I mean, I, he he declares that. So I'm not going to argue with Jesus. Well, and I'm, I certainly wasn't. I certainly wasn't saying that Jesus was wrong in saying that. Um, I'm saying that if if the spirit for some reason isn't moving in your community, is that because of a lack of faith? Is that the only reason, or is it because John three, the spirit moves where he will? And you don't know where he's going to go or where because you don't control it. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I think I, that's a chicken and the egg kind of question, right? Oh, I absolutely believe that the spirit doesn't move where it wants. So I'm just saying that it's it seems like someone who says the spirit is no those gifts are no longer active. Mm. I'm just like I'm sorry, but you're arguing with the Bible. I think at that point. Mm. I mean, I, I don't see anything in scripture that says they're not. Most people that I've talked to that says the gifts are no longer active, they usually are almost immediately go to Benny Hinn and say, see? Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, I agree that he's not, <laughs> that's not the spirit. <laughs> but, I mean, I've never seen a good argument from scripture that says, clear, that, that clearly says the gifts are no longer active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Someone show me, it, then it, I, it, I consider it, it but I, I don't. It talks about it in Corinthians. I guess I can go there, guys. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. 
Yeah, yeah. A little, little off topic here because we were talking about revelation here, but we'll, <laughs> the, we'll fix this. We'll fix this issue. Yeah. I think that, but to, while you're looking that up, Frank, to bring it back to revelation, I think that it is. This all stemmed from what you were saying about uh, extra scriptural sources having not carrying the same sort of weight as mm. using internal evidence. Um, we need to because, be explicitly yeah, biblicists. Yeah, yeah, because what happens is, is that you end up getting things like, okay, so if we're looking at evidence for talking about, talking about, well, uh, are the gifts still active? You know, uh, using our own observation is right. not an adequate mm-hmm. right. assessment of whether or not those are actually active or if they've gone into hibernation, you have to use, you have to totally. use scripture, right? To, right. to reinforce that. Um, yeah. So. I, and I think, um, I'm not looking anything up right now. Um, <laughs> well, just, Frank's going to, Frank's going to set everything straight. Yeah. He, while, while he, uh, while he gets the proof text, I know I remember reading, um, an argument out of Hebrews for cessationism. So the idea that, and I don't, but I don't remember Thad how, explicit the cessationism was if it was like there are no spiritual gifts anymore. I don't, I don't hear a lot of people making that argument, but more the, those spiritual gifts um, that, are, that were very prevalent in the first century, those things that, um, you know, raising the dead and healing people with your shadow falling on them and everybody yeah. bursting forth into all the different languages at once and people being able to understand it. I have I have a little bit of a hard time seeing the argument that well that doesn't happen anymore because our faith isn't strong enough because I think that there was a reason that happened in the first century and there's a reason why it's not happening now and our faith or lack thereof is not necessarily the common denominator as to why it's happening or why it's not happening. I, I, I didn't mean to suggest that that's why I believe that that, that the spirits are still active. And the evidence right. is that I'm I don't have enough faith, and that's why I'm just saying that. To me, I don't see anything in scripture that says they would cease. So right, they, they got to be active, and why they're not here, I don't know. I yeah. just threw that out as a speculation. Sure. Because, yeah. But I mean, that's I don't. True. I'm not at all saying that that I have any confidence at all. I just think that clearly they're active. The the, the Jesus said, you know, that we would he came that we would do even more than he's doing mm. now. I mean, and that seems to be a claim to the. Maybe he's just talking to the disciples, but there's nothing clear in that passage that says he's only talking to his disciples. You know, yeah. so I think I would love to hear. Well, but if if it's saying Hebrew, that a few oh ago we come on, come on! The kid was finally going to get a chance to talk. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he even raised his hand and was yeah, he's, been, he's been raising it. Go he ahead, raised his hand. He didn't even interrupt an adult. Black man. What were we saying? Well, let me let me just respond to what you were saying, that Thad, because I I've struggled a lot with what Jesus meant. Like, what did, how could we do more better things than He's doing? Mm-hmm. But I think the, the, what makes sense to me that doesn't this doesn't mean it's biblical. But this what I think makes sense from the from the biblical perspective is that at Pentecost, when the Spirit actually indwelled us in a way that it had never done before. We were we had been, we were empowered in that way to walk by the Spirit, for sure. Which even Jesus wasn't doing that in the way that we do it now. 
you know, he, he was, you know, he was God. And so you can make a discussion about, you know, where was the spirit and, yeah. in relation to his physical body and all of that. But, but the fact is we have the, we have the spirit of Christ now, which allows us to walk in the victory of the gospel. For sure. Which is something that when Jesus was here, we couldn't do. Right. And so he had to leave for that to happen. And, Absolutely. and to me, that's, that's far superior speaking in tongues or raising the dead or any of the spiritual gifts um, that we talk about there. Um, yeah, Ava. Um, how come the people back, um, like in the 60s and the 90s, how come they, like Paul and John could do miracles and people these days can't do miracles anymore? Right. Well, let me ask you this. Who was doing those miracles through them? God. God was doing those miracles through them. So um, they weren't actually doing anything. I mean, they, they were believing God. They were walking by faith. But it was God who was working through them. I know, but but it, like, like if why doesn't God work through people like that to these days? Well, that's actually the discussion that we're having. Is that does he? Yeah, does he? And I I think both Uncle Fad and I would say that he absolutely does. Maybe maybe it looks different than first century. You know, silver and gold have I none, but get but get up and walk. Maybe it does look like that today. Um, maybe it doesn't. So I think that's kind of what the discussion is. It's a good question. Also, like when Jesus had, or when Paul was, or Peter gave his first speech, there was not very many followers of Christ, and like the, the gospel had to be spread quickly because mm-hmm. there was just a couple of people. I mean, not, there's no, nothing based on the Bible, but... And on that one sermon, like, 3,000 people come to Christ. Uh, yeah, it seems like... A lot of the... God wanted to make things start happening. So, so, like, so there's your, your hypothesis is that basically that God creating a sense of... Ur- with a sense of urgency to push forward... In the establishment, the, in establishment of the church. In the and the, the establishment of the, the supremacy of the gospel. It was like, check this out. And then mm-hmm. there's just a whole bunch of God moving in a, in a different in a different way, and that's consistent with the work of Christ because He says, "If you don't believe Me, at least believe the signs that I'm doing for you," because yeah. He did all of those signs so that people would know I'm not just saying this. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I think you also, if you look in Acts, I, I think there's an interesting pattern in Acts that often when they talk about miracles in Acts, it comes right after a smart, a short little passage on how people devoted themselves to the preaching of the word and, the, and those mm-hmm. things came out of right because people were hmm. pursuing the truth and studying scripture and you know really uh, I think there's at least three places in Acts where it says the people gave themselves to and then they started talking about miracles and yep. so there's a I think obviously a, once again a connection to connection to Christ produces the Signs of wonders, and not a, not out of a, you get a reward for studying me, but a sense of that when we are connected with yeah. Christ, then we mm-hmm. move. Yep. You know, He's moving through us more readily. So. so four minutes, and we can call it the end. Well, I'm going to leave before that. I gotta go. <laughs> so you're going to read something, right? No. Uh-huh. There we go. That kind of awkward word 
simply Awkward defines word. the belief that the New Testament miraculous gifts cease. They cease. That has been the normative historical view of the church through the church's life, going all the way back to the New Testament and on into the modern era. But since the turn of the 20th century, there has been the birth of a, of a strange uh, Pentecostal and then charismatic movement that wants to affirm that all the sign gifts, miraculous gifts, are back, including prophets, including apostles. Uh, and you might say, well, does it really matter? Is it a peripheral issue? Well, it uh, depends on what you mean by peripheral. Uh, it doesn't affect the gospel necessarily. But, but it affects something very, very important that is related to the gospel, and that is divine revelation. Because if you're saying God is still speaking through prophets, still speaking through apostles, then he's not finished speaking. So yeah. that I need my Bible and a prophet or prophets, my Bible and some apostles, that I don't have everything sufficient in the word of God and so I need some miraculous gift to get me through, some miraculous word of knowledge, word of wisdom, some miraculous insight, some uh, divine experience, some transcendent kind of thing, or I can't make it as a, as a Christian. I, I need that. Uh, that, that. That introduces an entirely out-of-control element to the closed canon of Scripture and an entirely out-of-control element to Christian living. Because people then are subject to the whim of the people they trust as prophets and apostles. And they're subject to the whim of what they feel is a word from God or a message from God. They're subject to uh, promises of healing and wealth and all of that that are illegitimate promises. So, it, first of all, it's not true, it's not right to propagate something that's not true. Secondly, it clouds the issue of the Word of God being sufficient and complete. And thirdly, it adds an element into spiritual living that is completely mystical and arbitrary. When all that we need is in the Word of God, and the Spirit quickens what is in the Word of God to accomplish all His goals in us, in our Christian matters a lot. And that's why we've addressed it and will continue to answer the questions that came out of Strange Fire. We want to make sure we do everything we can to, to clear this away so that the truth... MacArthur? Another... <laughs> yeah, oh, that's, that's Johnny. <laughs> that's Johnny. Did, I, did you find the passage in First Corinthians? Um, I was going, I, I think it might be in uh, chapter 12 of First Corinthians, but okay. I didn't want to dig through it too much. Okay. Oh. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, yeah, it's chapter 12. I, I think that, I think that Johnny there is, his position is basically the, the, the final word of God is Jesus Christ and the supremacy of the gospel and then a, a, everything else was in its efforts pointing directly to that and so that's kind of where I find myself hmm. where, uh, where, I, where I kind of struggle with um, 
a word spoken that is from God to deal with a particular circumstance that isn't gospel related, that mm-hmm. isn't pointing to it, and maybe and maybe that's where I, you know some on somebody on the other side of the aisle of that might say, well, you know, do you not trust God with the little things too? You know, like because that's kind of the argument. Like you get somebody who's really cynical, like myself, who's like, okay, uh, I, I I I frown upon people who are go, oh, well, God gave me this great parking spot in Walmart, right? You know, and I'm like, with that too. yeah, and you're like, yeah, he, he did, but he's also sovereign over everything, so will you also worship him? So he gave you the bad parking spot, too. Yeah, when you have the terrible terrible parking spot, the you know, exercise. Yeah, 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 exactly, like, right? I mean, like, that should be the attitude, right? Thank you, praise Jesus for that, and you know, I mean, I, 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 get, I get where people are coming on from the other side where it's like okay well you know like having somebody speak into it Mm -hmm. shouldn't be bad but at the same time like if I get I'd rather be far too heavy on Jesus and gospel in my focus and maybe be slightly diminutive or to the to, to some of these like circumstantial things that maybe bolster an individual's Christianity. And, and at the same time, we want to live in a world where we believe that God is living and active and his word will cut us up and make us into something new and that he is sovereign over our parking spaces and our, sure. brain, and our brain tumors. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, if, we, if we aren't, if we don't have, Thank God for something. Then who are we thinking? Yeah, for? I mean, I, if you're going to thank someone, then thank God. Uh, yeah, well, I, I couldn't help but think. Of I this. just think that. I, yeah, I again, agree totally. Every still every argument I've heard has been towards the cuckoos that that abuse right. it. I mean, and I agree with John. I mean, there's there's some wackos out there that right. are trying to pretend like they're prophets and trying to pretend like they're mm-hmm. healers and trying to pretend like and it's and it gives good gospel-centered Christians a really bad name. Yeah. And, and you and can be, and I, I, see, I'm, I'm, this is where I'm on the spectrum in terms of prophecy or being prophetic. If you're, if you're bringing the word and you're speaking to people and the Holy Spirit is using you to speak to people, yeah. I, I'm maybe speaking out of my ignorance here, but I see that as prophetic. Absolutely. And so I'm, I'm 100% on board with you there. Uh, 100%. Yeah. So I just, I mean, I think that, uh, Really, I came to this because I was, you know, I was raised in a Presbyterian church and the frozen chosen. Man. We, <laughs> you know, we just, That's my favorite term, man. We, our faces in the Bible, and we don't think about anything else. And, um, but I, I, I came. To, Thanks for coming, man. I came to a point where I, the more I read the Bible, I thought, man, I can't be close-minded. I got to be open to anything. Anything the yes. Bible says. You know, I mean, I, I definitely want to be close-minded to stuff outside the Bible, but, but anything the Bible says is true, man, just yeah. because I'm not experiencing it doesn't make it true, it's kind of, yeah. Yeah, unless there's something that's saying, well, that was true, but it's not true anymore, then okay, yeah, I mean, I can right. accept that, but if, but if yeah. the Bible says it's true, then I, I mean, I'm in shaky mm. ground if I'm arguing with it, you know. Amen to that. So, did, did you have a scripture? Well, I was, we were talking about, like, God giving us these good things, I was, I, I thought of James where he says, do not be deceived. 
My beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation. Most good gifts, right? Yeah, every every good gift, (laughs) with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think it's funny because it's uh, sort of like we were talking about, like with the parking, the parking lot situation there. Like, oh, God gave me a good parking spot. Yes, He did. But when you park, when you have to park at the far end of the, He also gave you that parking spot. And like having to realize that was the better one. Yeah, and but having (laughs) having to look at okay, like what's what is God doing in this moment in my life like he's still lord of all even in the bad moments in spite right. of your bad circumstance yeah um you know i mean like look at job job was like well god's god and i'll just i'll worship yeah. and do you know even though all these horrible things have happened to right. him right well i mean yeah. look at james the first part of james is consider it joy pure joy you know pure joy and yeah. all kinds of tr- i mean so our biggest problem is we thank god for the wrong things yeah. we, we don't even know what's good you know, yeah. we get a parking yeah. spot right in front of Walmart and we jump out and say, praise the Lord, I got close. And then, you know, and then we... Then a cart hits our car. Yeah. <laughs> or we run into trouble and we say, Lord, what are you doing? Like, well, you, 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 if you, you know, if you believe in, in Jesus and you know that you, he's your author and perfecter of your faith, this trial is going to turn you out better at the end. You know, that's what James says. That, that's why we consider pure joy. So... You know, I think right. we think, wow, I'm going to thank God for the nice parking pot and I'm going to curse him when he makes gives me a little bit of discomfort because mm-hmm. usually yeah. that's what we think of as trials, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, flat having, yeah. having to walk an extra 200 <laughs> yeah. yards. This is so terrible. I can't believe this happened to me. <laughs> I thought God loved me. Yeah. yeah. I thought God loved me. You're not dead. <laughs> There's the proof right there. Yeah. And then you're so going like this that you don't see a pothole. Yeah. Oh well, I think yeah. we should close up. Yeah, I think that's a good place. It's to been, be, so. been really good. I've enjoyed hearing everybody's perspective on that because yeah. it's it really is a. I think that the the, the, the ex, there's extremes on every you know and mm-hmm. on everything, but in that particular one, I think the making sure that they're you're balancing the idea of not ever being closed off to what the Bible says but also guarding against what our human nature is. Yeah. I, heard, I heard a guy uh, talk about, he was talking about worship and the regulative principle of worship, which the regulative principle of worship is that our worship services, Lord's Day worship services, should only encompass things that God has given us. You know, we shouldn't just be really creative with our worship and just do whatever we want. And he said the reason is because our hearts are naturally corrupt. And, we'll, and if we're, if we're going to corrupt anything, we're going to corrupt worship you know, one, as one of the primary things that we corrupt is going to be worship. And so... So that's like light shows and stuff like that. Is that yeah. What you're yeah. Lighters yeah. coming out of these oh, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that would, once again, that'd be like the extremes of it. Yeah. Um, but, but... The, the, well, yeah. Well, a lot like, of, like, sometimes in the bigger, like, often in bigger churches, they really put on a show. And that, I mean, that's something that's right. bugged me. And I'm not out of... Right. I think it's biblical. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. It just bugs me. You know? Yeah. Well, I have a hard time. People are like, oh, I don't like hymns because they're so droll and boring and, yeah. and old-fashioned sounding. And like, yes, they are, but they're typically more theologically and biblically sound than. I mean, not always the case, but right. Um, I yeah, there's some there's some bad hymns too. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Unitarians have hymns too. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I guess the, the point of bringing that up that is lasted through time are, yeah, are just right. because they're so solid. Yeah, they're really solid yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to be absolutely uh, obedient to Scripture, um, and, but we also want to guard against our tendency to corrupt things. We, For we sure. want to corrupt absolutely. things. We want to be selfish about things. 
And so we guard against that, and we guard against it by knowing our Bibles and trusting yeah. our Bibles. So. Compare everything back to the, yeah. to the Word. Yeah. Spencer, you want to close this in prayer? Yeah, I can do that. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this group, for this time that we can all get together and um, hear some teaching by Dr. Sproul, even after he's passed. Um, Lord, I just thank you that, um, that you are so faithful to us, that your word is unwaveringly true, um, and that we can sit here and debate and discuss, but we know that as long as we cling to your word and um, just cling to salvation through Jesus, that um, that is what you want from us, Lord. I pray that we would... Um, all come away from here just um, looking to you, looking to your word. Um, pray that you'd bless us through it, and that you'd bless us in the coming week. And uh, again, Lord, I just thank you for all the ways that you bless us, even when we don't see it um, or don't understand it. And I praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.